Uh, good morning, everybody. First, it's great to see so many of you here this morning. Um, what, we're, what we're going to be talking about today is um, pan-European contracts. So we're taking a sort of English law view um, and then um, applying sort of French, German and Italian law to that as well. Um, and I'm particularly delighted to welcome here this morning from um, the firms um, that, that we're working with on this project, um, Andreas Peschel-Mainer from SKW Schwartz in Munich, uh, Emmanuel Schult from Berset in Paris, and Domenico Colella from Portolano in Rome and Milan. We've done this a couple of times before in the past and found that it's a really good way of getting across the differences and the similarities um, between the four jurisdictions. So um, today uh, we're looking at, um, we're doing a sort of case study and then using that as a sort of tool to hang off um, a number of different issues that we find regularly recur in this sort of situation. So contract formation and the formalities in the different jurisdictions that go into that, breach of the contract once formed and what's recoverable as loss by way of damages in the four jurisdictions. Um, and then particularly the, the sort of practical issues around handling disputes short of litigation, so pre-litigation disputes in, in, in the four jurisdictions. Um, and as I've said, from four firms, we have Andreas for Germany, uh, Emmanuel for, for, for France and Domenico for Italy. And for the UK, um, Paul Garland um, will be handling um, contract formation formalities and, and the litigation side, and then Paul O'Hare will be looking at breach. So very quickly, just to run you through um, the background to the workshop scenario that we'll be using uh, today. So you are the general counsel of a company called Software Magic, which is a pan-European supplier of software to the retail and fashion sectors. Uh, the, the Software Magic's sales manager is a chap called Johnny English, and he's contacted you about a recent deal with one of their customers, one of Software Magic's customers, um, a design house called Bartoli, which is headquartered in Milan with branches in Frankfurt, London, and Paris. Bartoli has a German subsidiary called Strados, which has bought the Magic Plus platform to support its stock management requirements. The deal was signed at the beginning of July last year, 2011, and there are now some problems with the contract and the project. Johnny English sends you the documents that were signed on the 1st of July, and they are the Software Magic Service Contract and the Software Magic Order Form. The service contract states that it excludes all indirect and consequential loss and lost profit, limiting total liability to the amount paid by the customer in the preceding 12-month period. Now we've sort of taken that as a typical example of what you'll find in, in this sort of contract. Then the order form covers an outright perpetual license of the software for a 2 million euro <coughs> license fee and a 450,000 annual support fee. It also states, the order form also states, that the parties will continue to discuss in good faith the scoping of a project to implement the software, details of which will be set out in a statement of work to be agreed by the 31st of August 2011, subject to contract and further diligence. Now, the, the Software Magic Sales Guide, Johnny English, only received a PDF copy of the order form 
signed by the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer of Strados, called Dr. Deutsch. Um, the documents hadn't been signed by Software Magic. And it turns out that in July 2011, Software Magic did agree to start work on the project at Stratos's request to help them achieve their internal milestones. This was on the basis that all work performed will be on a TNM, a time and materials basis, unless otherwise agreed in the statement of work. And that was confirmed in an email exchange between Messrs English, uh, between Johnny English and the Stratos program manager. And uh, uh, Software Magic have already incurred 100,000 euros in professional service fees. Johnny is worried because Stratos' project manager is becoming increasingly difficult in project meetings. Our latest effort, estimate is for a, a thousand man days effort, 1.5 million euros. Uh, he's continued to find the Stratos project manager has continued to find problems with the project plan for the statement of work and Stratos is refusing to pay the invoices we've sent them for the license fees and professional services fees. So Johnny English, in the, in the way that the sales guys often do, comes into your office and says, we're okay from a contractual perspective, aren't we? So that's the fact pattern. And then we're looking in part one at sort of formation and formalities issues. First, has an enforceable contract been created between Software Magic and Strados regarding the implementation project? And if so, is that under the order form? Second, is receipt of the PDF copy signed by Dr. Deutsch for Strados sufficient? Third, is the CFO's signature sufficient to rely on? What about emails from a program manager? And does it matter that Johnny hasn't also signed the order form? Fifthly, can a contract created be created by first the exchange of the emails or secondly, the subsequent conduct of the parties? So uh, over to Paul Garland now um, on the uh, for formation of formalities issues. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Richard. Morning, everyone. So we thought we'd kick off just with a, a quick reminder of the basics under English law. This would obviously be most familiar to, to, to all of you. Um, so technically, you're looking for a contract to be there. There needs to be those four basic elements. So you need to have offer, acceptance, consideration, and that intention to create binding legal relations. And that acceptance doesn't apply, isn't effective, unless it's until it's communicated back to the offeror. Now in practice, UK courts have through, through the years, all the way since Merit and Merit in the 70s, have been pretty quick to infer contracts been made uh, where there's been some sort of cooperation engagement between the parties. Um, they formulated this objective test, and that's about whether as a, a reasonable and honest businessman would have concluded from the conduct that terms had been agreed. And in most cases, in business-to-business -business contracts, there'll be that presumption of intention. And in, in B2B contracts, uh, in terms of formalities, generally under English law, things are pretty light. So it doesn't need to be in writing, doesn't necessarily need to be signed. So all things like online, email, oral formation of contracts are perfectly possible. Um, and all those usual principles that we talked about in terms of offer, acceptance, consideration and intention all apply. So that's what you're looking for one way or another. And it can be in a whole range of, of, of different sources. So if it's not all in one document, all in one contract, you still may well have a contractual uh, agreement, but you're then into evidential issues. So what actually is the offer and the acceptance and, and, and what are the terms? Um, and that will all be assessed by a court under the usual balance of probabilities 
uh, standard. The other thing worth mentioning is that uh, you, you need to have an eye out for authority issues. So particularly if someone's signing on behalf of a company, uh, can they actually bind that company? And then you're into actual and ostensible authority, which we'll touch on in answering the questions. So straight on to the questions. They're the first five. First one was whether there was an enforceable contract regarding the implementation process. And under English law, we'd say no. There was no intention to create binding legal relations. It was expressly stated to be subject to contract, um, and that's uh, and therefore very unlikely to be a contract. Second question was the receipt of the PDF sufficient? And um, that's likely to be yes. So if what's happened is an offer going out from Software Magic, and then communication of that of acceptance of that by the receipt by the sending of the PDF by Strados. That would be deemed as, as, as communication of the acceptance, um, so enough to formulate the contract. Then on to the, uh, the authority point. So the CFO has signed uh, the document. The contract's not going to be enforceable if he hasn't got authority to sign. But in these situations, it'd be very unusual for a CFO not to be able to bind a company. And very likely, he's either got actual or ostensible authority. So the sensible authority being that he's being held out as having the authority and you're entitled to rely on that unless there's specific reasons which you are aware of or ought to be aware of that you can't. Talked also about the program manager who signed and there it's a bit more tricky. He may well not have authority and certainly in that situation you want to be prudent and be asked questions because he might sign in situations where he hasn't got the right to bind the company and you don't want it to be argued about later. And the last question, the fifth one, can there be a contract from the exchange of emails all the parties' conduct, and here under English law, pretty easy. Both can be sufficient to bind to form binding contracts. Terms were agreed, the time and material basis, there was enough there, enough detail, uh, it, uh, the important points, and it's all been evidenced in the emails, so you're fine. The only question under this is whether the programme manager had the right to bind the customer, um, so there may be authority issues. <coughs> so that's the English position. I'm going to hand over now to Andreas to run through the German. Good morning everybody. So before jumping directly to the answers um, of the questions, I also would like to outline a little bit the general rules with regard to formation, formalities and uh, authority issues in, in Germany. So with regard to formation, we uh, there seems to be the first big difference to the situation in the UK as we do not have four elements, we have three elements, which is um, an offer. Uh, an acceptance and because it's quite helpful the two matching each other that's the third element we have in Germany and we do not have as a as a criteria for the formation of a contract um, a uh, consideration element um, that in theory is of course a difference I think in practice it might be not such a difference because um, yeah, also in Germany, most of the times, so there's a consideration element uh, integrated or implied in the contract. Um, both the offer, as in UK, uh, both the offer and the acceptance need to be received by the other party. Um, there are only very few exceptions to this rule. And also in Germany, the, the underlying intention of to which extent and uh, if at all, 
the offer is binding or not, or the acceptance, um, the intention of the uh, person uh, is the key element for uh, the interpretation, what is concluded. Um, with regard to formalities, also in Germany we have the formality light concept, that means for business contracts we do not need any formality, there are only very few exceptions such as real estate transfer uh, transactions or the transfer of shares for a limited liability company. Um, there we need notary deeds, but for the normal business we do not need any formality. So it's possible in Germany to conclude contracts on a purely oral basis uh, or even uh, by factual behavior. That's no problem. Also the same issue in Germany is you have to prove uh, your, your claim and your contract and um, that is an issue if it's done only orally or by factual behavior. Also, very often um, the start of work is uh, uh, a sign that a contract is uh, concluded by factual <laughs> behavior. So you should be aware once you start really working with somebody that uh, despite the fact that there might be missing all written documents or even emails, uh, you will have the start of a contract. With regard to authority issues, uh, first of all, you can rely on any authority and powers which are registered in the commercial register um, or um, disclosed to you by the company. And of course, you can rely on the mandatory legal authority of executive bodies such as managing directors or the board of a Aktiengesellschaft. Um, if these kind of things are not in place. Uh, the recommendation clearly is to ask for um, a proof of individual power of your contracting partner or the, the person who is dealing with the contract. So having said this, let's jump into the answers. As an enforceable contract being created between SM and Stratos regarding the implementation um, project. So, First of all, not under the order form, because in the order form there was, you, you might remember, there was only the intent uh, to agree and ne negotiate about the implementation of the software project. But there had been this email exchange between um, Stratos and um, your company, and uh, there you agreed either uh, explicitly or by factual behavior you agreed that uh, the implementation work should start on a time and material basis. So that is a contract um, and with regard to this email exchange you are safe uh, with regard to the time and material spent. Is receipt of the PDF copy signed by Dr. Deutsch sufficient? Um, as outlined uh, with regard to formality issues, a PDF copy is fine, that's no problem. With regard to the formation of a valid contract, uh, we will uh, look into more detail uh, with regard to question number four, because there's a difference, I think, to UK, which I would like to outline a little bit later. Um, is the signature of a CFO sufficient to rely on? What about emails from a program manager? As mentioned, uh, a CFO normally is regarded as being a member of the board 
uh, of a company, so you, you should and could rely on the signature of a CFO. With regard to a program manager or a project manager, it very much depends on the circumstances, how big is the company, what, what is standard practice um, in, in this field of, of industry. But normally these kind of titles, especially if they act for an ongoing uh, period, uh, you might rely on the power um, of such program manager because the company is tolerating it. And if it turns out that there's no power in place, uh, the company might be held liable for the doings of his program manager. But a clear recommendation in, in these kind of um, uh, cases, ask for a written confirmation especially when it's about signing a contract. Does it matter that SM has not also signed the order form? Yes, it does matter because I think the difference to UK is um, we do not have an acceptance by SM because SM did not countersign the contract. Um, the sending of the draft by SM was not an offer. This was an invitation to make an offer by Strados. And therefore, sending the signed PDFs was the first binding offer uh, in this case, which has not been yet accepted by SM because we have no counter, counter signature. But and as a result, at the very end of the day, um, we have a binding contract because once a soft SM has delivered the software and start works, uh, by factual behavior, they accepted the binding offer and the signed PDFs. So it's a little bit different how uh, the result of a concluded contract um, is uh, created, but um, it's, it's a different way. And uh, last but not least, the fifth question, I think we might have answered this already. Yes, a contract can be created by exchange of emails or by factual behavior or subsequent conduct of the parties. Um, that, to be honest, happens all the time on a daily basis and uh, no one doubts that uh, contracts can be concluded on this basis. Um, in, in our case, for example, <laughs> with the signed PDFs coming in from Strados not being countersigned, there might be a reason for not countersigning. Maybe you still would like to change something in the, in the PDFs because you thought again about the, the content and uh, you wait until you have full clearance about what has to be changed in the PDFs. In this case, you should not start to deliver the software start work because you would be bound by the signed PDFs as they are and you wouldn't have a chance to, to amend the terms. Thank you. I think that was the German view. Now Domenico for Italy. Thank you. Welcome to, to this event and thank you to our friends at Complito for having arranged this. Uh, now we discuss briefly about it, Italy, about Italian law, starting from the legal background, is you know, pretty similar to, to what was outlined by Andreas uh, in respect of Germany, basically. We have two basic elements, proposal and acceptance, and acceptance is not effect effective until uh, communicated to the, to the other party. With respect to service contracts and <coughs> software, license, uh, software licenses in B2B transactions, we have no formal restraints at all. That means that a PDF or 
an email is allowed in order to enter into an agreement uh, in this area. But we have two exceptions. The first one is related to software licenses. Under Italian law, an agreement regarding the use of a software application must be proven in writing. That means that if you have no written agreement, you could prove the existence of such agreement, not by witnesses, not through presumption. So it would be, it, it be quite difficult for you to prove the actual terms and conditions of your software license if you have no written evidence. So what would happen if you, you know, end up, you know, not having a written agreement that the law will apply. And this could be problematic in particular if you are the licensor, of course, since the law could not be as advantageous as, you know, the, the terms of your own terms and, and conditions. And the second exception is related to so-called oppressive clauses. What does it mean? When you have a, a standard agreement that you use with your clients, you need to have the, your, the, the, the counterparty to specifically approve in writing, so to put their signature on certain so-called oppressive clauses, which are typically clauses uh, implying the right for the proposing party to cancel the agreement, or clauses you know, disposing exclusivity on jurisdiction, or clauses you know, limiting the right for the non-proposing party to raise objections that kind of clauses in standard agreements need to be accepted in writing under Italian law. So this would be another formality to be <coughs> complied with. Of course, agreements could be concluded, entered into also by course of dealings, as, uh, as you know, in, this, uh, in the case we are, we are discussing. With respect to authority issues, if you know, the signatory is a company or a, a, a body or a director of a company, we have a, a, the general rule in Italy is that if, the signature, if the, the signatory is a director of a company, there is a presumption you know, that the guy would be empowered to carry out all the activities that, that may be useful or necessary to achieve the corporate purpose. Unless, of course, the other party is in bad faith. That means, you know, is aware of the lack of powers, okay? If the signatory is not a director, of course, there should be a delegation of powers to the, to the signatory. What happens in case of lack of powers of the signatory? The agreement would be ineffective vis-a-vis -vis the company. And, and in that case, there will need, we will need, even by course of dealings, a confirmation by the company in order to, you know, to, to make uh, to, to, to have the company bound by, by the agreement. And there is, this, uh, the, the last bullet point in this slide, there is a principle of appearance for the protection of third parties in, in good faith. That means that if the signatory indisputably had the authority, an ostensible authority to, to sign the agreement on behalf of the company, so the third party, the counterparty in good faith, would be protected, and in this case, the agreement would be <coughs> effective vis-à-vis -vis the company, only if the counterparty was in good faith. So, to jump to the answer to uh, the initial question, uh, enf enforceability of the contract. 
yes, the, contra the service contract was enforceable in our case, even if uh, Software Magic uh, did not send back the agreement, they did, did not countersign the, agree the PDF copy, because, you know, they basically started uh, delivering uh, the, the, the software and the service. There will be some criticalities with respect to oppressive clauses. So in the in the standard uh, agreement, there were some oppressive clauses in the meaning I, I outlined for your benefit. Uh, those clauses could not be enforceable against Strados. And as, as we said, that we, we could have some problems in terms of proving the actual terms and condition of the software license since we did not countersign the software license, the, the order form regarding the software application. Is the receipt of a, of a PDF copy satisfactory? The answer is yes. Uh, in Italy, uh, under Italian law, it, the PDF is equivalent to a photocopy. So it's uh, is, uh, absolutely a, satisfa a satisfactory form unless the other party challenges uh, the, 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 um, the, that the document is true, genuine, and consistent with the, with the original one. But, you know, it's typically is, uh, is, is, is valid, a, um, a PDF copy of, of, of an agreement. Is the signature of the CA, uh, CFO um, valid for to, to, to bind the company? Yes, if, as we said, is a director of Stratos or, or if is empowered by the authorized representative. Otherwise, we will need a confirmation from the company. And, you know, we should investigate also the good faith of Software Magic in having the CFO of, as, a, as a counterparty and a signatory of the agreement. Um, what happens, you know, what about Software Magic um, uh, not having signed the, 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 the agreement? Of course, the contract is for if, if Software Magic proposal was accepted. And you know, in our case, we had, as, as we said, the delivery of the software and the services. So we can strongly uh, sustain that agreement was was uh, entered into in this in this case. Of course, we could have some problems in terms of proving the actual terms and condition applicable to the software license. And finally, the contract can be concluded by means of exchange of emails and uh, subsequent contact uh, conduct of uh, of the parties. Uh, remember that in this case we had an exchange of, of correspondence between the program manager, who is not typically the, the legal representative, the authorized representative of the, of the company, and uh, and our account manager, the account managers at Software, Software Magic. In this case, you know, we should investigate what what happened as a, as a matter of fact. So typically. Did Strados accept the delivery of the software application and uh, and the service? In our in the case at stake, it, it happened. For instance, even if, if even if the, the, there was a, a, an exchange of correspondence between the program manager and the account manager, maybe the CFO was was copied, or the authorized representative was copied, and this could be a, an evidence of the willingness of the company to take delivery of the service and so we should investigate those aspects to to get over any uh, any doubt or uh, problem regarding uh, the authority of the program manager thank you so much i will leave the floor to manuel thank you, thank you. good morning everyone
So for once, uh, French law will appear to be rather standard and uh, close to English law, because as uh, for contract formation, for once, uh, for, uh, I think as for English law, we need four elements for in order to, to have a, a valid formation of uh, an agreement. First of all, is an, an, an offer and the consent of the party who is accepting the offer. The acceptor, second element, the acceptor must uh, have the, the capacity to contract. That means that it, it, as, a, as, a, as a physical person, he, should be able, or, he or she should be able to, to sign. Uh, for instance, uh, this uh, person should be an adult person uh, versus a child. We need a third condition. We need a defined object forming the subject matter of the contract. That means that, for instance, in services contract, uh, it is important to to have all the services uh, defined or uh, to, to, to insert in the contract uh, elements that could uh, permit to define the, the subject matter of the contract. Otherwise, it could be claimed that uh, the contract has no defined object and that there is no, no contract, even though we, do, we will have the other elements of the contract. And finally, uh, which is almost the case, in, in every situation, we need a lawful cause in the obligation. In B2B agreements, uh, there are no specificities uh, with respect to the formalities of the contract. We do not need to have a written agreements. Uh, agreements could be uh, could be verbal. Uh, they could uh, they could be uh, formed uh, according to, to the what we call the usage or the standards of the of the professions of the the, the concerned professions. Uh, in practice, the, the, what would uh, make an agreement uh, versus the absence of any agreement would be the, the, will, the mutual will of the parties to, to, to intend to contract. And uh, in that uh, respect, the, the starting of the, the work could be the acceptance of the a contract, even though nothing has been signed between the parties. Regarding authority, uh, the person signing or agreeing to a contract must have the, the, the authority to do so and to, to represent the company. That's a principle. However, in practice and as uh, for Italy, we have this so-called uh, theory of appearance, which means that third parties can reasonably rely on the title, on the, the visit card of the, of the, of the person who's uh, negotiating uh, with him. So if we come to the questions, uh, first question, do we have an enforceable contract uh, with respect to the software implementation? The, questions, the, the, the answer is clearly a no, because it is clearly indicated that this uh, implementation uh, services will be subject to contract and further due diligence. So there is an intention to contract, but there is no contract. Second question, is the receipt of PDF sufficient Yes, in uh, commercial matters, uh, any, any proof or evidence of contract could be brought by any means. Uh, and uh, the, moreover, the, the, the French Civil Code has now explicitly recognized the signature uh, by electronic means. So a PDF would be uh, sufficient. Third question is, is the CFO signature okay? So here again, one can reasonably believe that the CFO has the necessary authority to sign. And as for Italy, uh, it, would be on the, it would be for Stratos to prove that uh, SM was aware that the CFO didn't have the authority to sign and that uh, SM was in bad faith uh, to, to be able to, 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 uh, to, um, to challenge the validity of the contract and the signature of the CFO. 
the same would apply for the program manager. Uh, if we, you have in front of you a program manager, uh, you may believe, reasonably believe that he has the power to, to negotiate and to, to enter into a contract with respect to the, to the relevant program. Uh, unless, of course, you know that he was not entitled to, to do so. But uh, here again, to be on the safe side, uh, it is uh, mostly advisable to, to ask for any proof of, or any, any evidence of the authority of the person with, you, with whom you are negotiating. What if uh, SM didn't sign? So as I said, the signature is not a formal requirement to establish a valid contract under French law. Uh, here, with respect to the service contract and the license, uh, we do have a contract in force as, as uh, Stratos has accepted uh, SM's offer. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry for this. So this is the first question. Um, so as, as uh, Stratos has accepted uh, SM's offer, even by emails, uh, we do we do have a, a contract as there is there has been an agreement on the subject matter and on the price. And is the contract uh, from exchange of emails and conduct? So, as mentioned, a contract can be created by exchange of emails, and the tacit uh, acceptance can also, even though they, they, they wouldn't have been any uh, exchange of emails, the tacit uh, acceptance could be uh, derived from the starting of the work of the contract and the, the performance of the contract. So, now leave the floor for the other questions. Thanks, Emmanuel. Okay, so if we if we pick up the, the fact pattern here again, um, we're a couple of months further down the line. Um, Johnny English has phoned you to say there's a slight problem. Uh, Stratus's financial position has taken a turn for the worse following the, the credit crunch, and it's had to seek restructuring from its Italian and German banks, both of whom are demanding uh, significant cost-cutting measures are taken throughout the business. Stratos has, as a result, served notice to terminate the, the order form. Uh, they're stating or claiming that the Magic Plus software is not fit for purpose um, as out-of-the-box software and is going to require um, a lot more configuration and implementation work than is reasonable in the circumstances. <clears throat> um, they still haven't paid the license fee. They've refused to pay uh, the first year support fees and Software Magic has now incurred half a million euros of uh, professional services fees. There have been numerous uh, escalation meetings uh, between the, the program manager and Dr. Deutsch, but to no avail, still unable to agree the statement of work. So, the three questions that we're going to look at now um, are, first of all, what can software magic recover from early termination by Stratos? Um, secondly, can we recover the, um, the estimated 1.5 million uh, euros of implementation fees? Um, and thirdly, what might Stratos be able to recover uh, for misrepresentation and or breach of warranty um, under the order form. So, first of all, what can Software Magic recover? So we're assuming here for the moment that, uh, that Stratus has wrongfully terminated the contract. We'll look at the, the reverse position when we get to question eight, but this is a circumstance where um, Stratus has terminated unlawfully. A brief reminder of the, um, the general position under English law. Um, if there's a wrongful termination, the aim of damages under English law is to put the injured party, the innocent party, in the position they would have been in had the contract been performed. 
Um, there are basically two categories um, of recoverable loss uh, under English law. This is from Hadley and Baxendale. Um, we have the first category being direct loss, which is all loss uh, arising naturally and directly from the breach. Um, indirect or consequential loss, the two, the two terms mean the same thing under English law. Um, consequential loss um, is other loss, um, which doesn't arise naturally, but was nevertheless within the contemplation of the parties at the time the contract was entered into. So these are basically special losses um, that don't arise naturally, but um, were, uh, were brought to the attention of the parties at the time the contract was entered into. Um, and under English law, that's quite a narrow category um, of, of losses. The vast majority of, of losses in commercial contracts under English law are likely to be direct losses. Not all, but the vast majority. So that's the, the default position under English law. We then need to look at the limitations that we have in the contract. Um, and as we saw earlier on, we have um, an exclusion of liability for lost profit. Um, that's for loss of profit direct and indirect. And it applies to, it applies to both parties. So on the face of it, Software Magic cannot recover um, uh, its lost profit. Uh, the lost profit in this case would be direct, by the way. Um, the position isn't quite as straightforward as that uh, under English law. And the reason for that is that we had a case back in 2009, um, the Net TV and Mar Hedge case, um, in which the English courts held that if a party wants to rely on a limitation or exclusion of liability, in order to exclude liability for deliberate reputatory breach, which is what we have here, then the clause has got to explicitly say that. If it doesn't explicitly refer to deliberate breach, then it's not effective. So if, if, the, if the court here were to, um, to follow the decision in NetTV and Marhedge, um, Software Magic could recover the two million, pound sorry, two million euro licence fee, um, the 450k support fee, less any costs it would otherwise have incurred and subject to a duty to mitigate. Um, one word of warning in relation to Net TV, um, it hasn't been overruled uh, in the UK, um, but subsequent um, court decisions have, have criticised the judgment, criticised the outcome in that case. Um, so there is every possibility that we'll, it will be overturned at some point in the future. So from a supplier perspective, um, if we're advising suppliers, I think the advice would be to, to ensure that the exclusion of lost profit um, is drafted so that it only applies to the supplier's liability, um, or alternatively, that um, uh, it doesn't apply to, or it's, it's ex made explicitly clear that it doesn't apply to um, deliberate reputatory uh, breaches or deliberate breaches. So question seven, um, can we recover the 1.5 million euros estimated implementation fees? Um, the answer here is no. We don't have uh, a binding contract as far as the estimate is concerned. There is a binding contract, but it's only um, it's, it's, it's binding. The, the terms of it are on a time materials basis. So we can recover um, fees already incurred, but we cannot recover uh, future revenue. Um, and then finally, what might Stratos be able to recover for misrepresentation or breach of warranty under the order form? And the remedies available to Stratos are going to depend on whether the claim is founded in misrepresentation um, or breach of warranty. Looking at misrepresentation first, um, misrepresentation generally gives rise to a, um, a right to rescind the contract. Um, and that means to basically treat the contract as if it was never entered into in the first place. So it's different from a termination for breach right. It, 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 the contract is treated as if it never came into existence in the first place. Um, what that would mean is that uh, Stratos 
would get back any monies that it had paid under the contract. It hasn't actually paid any here, but if it had, it would um, receive those back. Um, in addition to the right of rescission, um, where you've got a, a misrepresentation claim, generally you also have um, a right to claim damages. And the, um, the, the, the basis of measurement of damages in a misrepresentation claim is the tortious method. Um, so that means putting the, the, the party um, in the position it would have been in had the contract not been entered into uh, in the first place. So looking at those two rights alongside each other, rescission and, and the damages claim, I think what the damages claim would give over and above rescission is an ability to claim um, wasted expenditure. So the cost of um, staff and management time in negotiating the contract, possibly in execution of the contract, um, possibly third party costs such as legal fees, those are all potentially recoverable. Where we've got a breach of warranty claim on the other hand, generally um, the, the general position under English law is that that does not give rise to any right of rescission, it doesn't give rise to a right to terminate the contract. Um, there may be an express termination right in the contract for breach of warranty, but in the absence of that there's generally no right to terminate. Um, Stratus would have a right to bring a claim for damages, the damages here would be assessed on a contractual basis. Um, which means putting them in the position they would have been in had the contract been performed properly, or uh, to put it another way, had the, um, ha had the warranty been correct. Um, in practical terms, what that means is that they're likely to be able to recover um, the, the costs, the additional costs of um, configuring the software and implementing the software so that it is fit for purpose, or if it's cheaper, the costs of, um, of uh, procuring replacement software. So the final point here then is just to think about enforceability issues. We've got um, uh, the contract on software magic standard terms. Um, so under English law, the Unfair Contract Terms Act will apply and the terms will only be enforceable to the extent that they satisfy uh, the reasonableness test under OCTA. Um, there is a, there, there's a potential question mark here as to whether um, uh, there is a, a, a specific carve-out under OCTA, um, so OCTA and the reasonableness test um, within OCTA does not apply to international supply contracts. Um, potentially we've got an international supply contract here. I think the one difficulty with application of that exception here is that it only applies to the sale of goods. Um, and uh, there's a lot of debate in, in, in the UK and under English law as to whether software um, is considered goods, but we had a case last year involving IBM and Southwark Borough Council, where um, the judge concluded that um, a software license in, in circumstances not dissimilar to this um, was not to be treated as a sale of goods. Um, and therefore, I don't think we can avail of that exception. Um, having said that, I think the, the, the IT industry has seen a lot of cases um, where this reasonableness test has been applied to a supplier standard terms. Um, and in the early days, the courts were coming down in favour of the customer. Um, the, the tide changed in 2000 um, with the Court of Appeal decision in Watford and Sanderson um, and now the courts are generally very, very reluctant to intervene in business-to-business -business contracts where you've got two parties of broadly equal bargaining power. Um, as I say, that trend, trend, trend started in 2000, it's, it's continued right the way through um, and the most recent case we've had on that is the, is the IBM and Southern Borough Council case that I just mentioned, which was last year. Um, and the two key factors there were the fact that um, the parties were broadly equal bargaining power and the fact they both had legal advice um, at the time the contract was entered into. So I think um, if that's the case, 
um, the courts will not step in to intervene, even if you've made a bad bargain. So I'll hand over to Andreas now to cover the German opposition. Thank you, Paul. So for the German law, what can an SM recover? So first of all, under German law, it's very important to evaluate what kind of contract we have at stake. We just uh, think about the, the, the facts. We have a order form, the soft, uh, magic software order form, which is a software license. We have an annual support contract, which is a service uh, agreement. And we have the implementation work, which is, uh, if it's concluded uh, in a valid way, it would be a commission agreement. The software license is more purchase agreement. And um, there is, therefore, with regard to the 2 million license fee, as it is a purchase agreement, if we assume a wrongful termination, uh, the claims of uh, uh, Software Magic would be to uh, have the license fee paid of two millions in full. It just doesn't count in that there's a termination in place which is wrongful. That wouldn't have any effect to the rights um, your company would have with regard to the software license agreement. It's just you have to put the, the, the party uh, or software matching in a position as a software matching would be in uh, if the wrongful termination wouldn't have taken place. Um, the same for the service agreement, if it's for a fixed term, if there's no um, just normal uh, uh, termination right in it, it's a fixed term of one year for 450,000 uh, support fee. Uh, same here, if it's a wrongful termination, uh, Software Matching has the right to ask for the full 450,000 uh, euros and they will be not considered if it's a service uh, agreement if there's anything they can save because they don't have to render uh, the support to Stratos. Um, this would be just a wrongful termination so that minimum damage would be the 450,000 for the first year. Um, the only condition here in Germany you should ongo you should um, offer your services uh, even after uh, the termination has taken place just in order to show that you are prepared to offer the service. Um, what can SM recover uh, next with regard to the implementation work? Um, here with regard to whatever, um, regardless if it's done in written, the implementation project, the contract about it, or by exchange of email, it's a commission agreement. And here the situation is a little bit different. Um, you can terminate any time such a commission agreement, but uh, you have to pay the full remuneration, um, except of anything you, you spare and save because you don't have to uh, f uh, render further commission work. So there, the situation is uh, pretty similar to uh, what was outlined by Paul for UK. Um, in case we have this uh, no, we have in case that we have no authorization of the project manager, although there um, with regard to the implementation project, 
um, there will be a liability of the company uh, in order to cover the, the costs incurred on a time and material basis. Um, that's also the case if by exchange of email there is not explicitly enough agreed or outspoken uh, on which terms uh, the work uh, shall be serviced to uh, Stratos, then a usual price, the market price, uh, will, will apply, which is usually also time and materials basis. So the result is license fees are due, the annual support fee is due, and uh, you will get um, all work and material invested in the implementation project. Uh, might SM be able to recover the 1.5 million estimated implementation fees? Uh, we can make this uh, very short. Same situation as in UK. No. As we pointed out, there's no binding agreement concluded between the parties with regard to the overall implementation project. And last not, but not least, what might Stratos be able to recover for misrepresentation and a breach of warranty? under the magic solution order forms. So if we assume um, that there is a malfunctioning or underperformance of the software, then the situation, of course, is uh, completely different to what we outlined um, with uh, answer number six, um, because SM is obligated to provide software as promised under, uh, promised under the SMOF. And if there's any default of the software, that would be a violation of SM contractual obligations. Um, well, the, the, the law scheme in Germany is then that as a first step, you have to ask for a proper fulfillment of the contract. Um, that, that means either delivery of a software which is uh, performing under the contractual obligations or maybe a repair of the software already in place at uh, Stratos premises. If that fails, uh, the contracting party has a choice between either rescission of the contract or reducing the fees. If uh, the contracting party here, Stratos, would choose, well, we keep the software, but it's not worth what we paid for, they can ask for a, a reduction of the license fees paid. Um, on top, there might be damage claims, but uh, any damage claim uh, on top of it uh, uh, um, requires at least uh, negligent behavior or negligent breach of the contractual duties of uh, uh, SM. So if F SM could prove that there's no negligence behavior, then uh, Stratos is restricted to the claims already outlined, uh, but would not have any damage claim. So that's for Germany, and I hand over again to Domenico. Thank you, Andreas. So, under Italian law, what can SM uh, recover from the wrongful, in case of wrongful termination of uh, Stratos? First of all, actual losses, that means cost and expenses accrued during the performance and delivery of the agreements, Lost, loss of profits, which is basically the consideration provided for by the contract. Consider that under Italian law, you can, that, that will not be awarded punitive, 
indirect, even if you know those indirect uh, damages were com contemplated by the parties in the, in the agreement, as 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 it is under under UK as could be under UK law, and of course, unforeseeable damages cannot be awarded in any case, in any event. With respect to limitation of liability, it, it is worth saying that whatever limitation of, of liability you may insert uh, in, a, in, a, in your agreement with your Italian customers, that will not, be, that will not apply to cases where there was a gross negligence or willful intent of the defaulting party. So if you, you, when, when you typically have a limitation of, of, of liability of, for instance, as, as, as it is in the case we are discussing about, 12 months of, of consideration that will apply to cases other than those caused by gross negligence and willful intent. So in cases uh, you know, where, where there is gross negligence and willful intent, you will, you will, need, you will pay to your counterparty all the damages they will be, they will be able to prove. Okay? With respect to uh, question number seven, might uh, SM be able to recover the 1.5 million euros estimated implementation fees? Uh, in, in, our, in the case we are discussing, the 1 million cap was overcome by, by the, the subsequent conduct of, of the parties because the party decided to proceed on a time or material basis. But in, in our case, as a matter of fact, there will be, there, there will be a discretionary calculation by the judge that, could, that will be typically helped by a court-appointed expert to understand the actual effort that was uh, uh, spent, that was uh, delivered by, by Software Magic in order to define the actual amount of the implementation fees that, uh, that will be awarded, uh, uh, that will be attributed to Software Magic. With respect to um, question number eight, what might Stratos be able to recover for misrepresentation or and or breach of warranty on under the um, software application, the Magic Solution order form? Um, Stratos will be able to terminate the order form or reduce. These are alternative means: termination or reduction of the consideration, if the software had malfunctions or defects that materially diminished its fitness for purpose, provided that Stratos was not aware of such defects or the same were not easily detectable. In addition to the termination or reduction of the, of the relevant consideration, Stratos could, be, could, could seek compensation for damages unless software magic was able to prove to have innocently ignored the defects of the software. Of course, in the case at issue, it seems that you know the, the claim, the Stratos claim is quite groundless because they were not claiming any defects or malfunction of the software, but rather they were, you know, uh, they they were terminating the agreement just because apparently the software was not a, an out-of-the-box software and the application required more implementation and customization and as they originally as, as as they originally expected 
which is not a defect or a malfunction of the software uh, by itself, but it was only, you know, a, an, an expectation of the counterparty, which was not apparently uh, documented in, uh, in the agreements. Now it's, it's time to hand over to Emmanuel again. Thank you, Domenico. So on the French law, what can uh, SM recover? Uh, first of all, uh, SM could recover the 2 million license fees because it, it was a purchase, a clear purchase of a software license, as well as all incurred services fees because there, 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 there was an agreement on a time and, and material uh, basis on, uh, with respect to the services. On top of that, uh, SM could uh, recover, uh, recover damages if there's a wrongful termination. Uh, the amount of the damages would be determined by the judge, by co uh, courts, and uh, in principle, under French law, you could only claim direct losses, such as expenses uh, against evidence and or losses uh, of profits. And sometimes the, 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 the frontier between uh, what is direct or indirect is very... Uh, very soft, and uh, this gives uh, rise to a lot of discussions be be before the courts. Question seven: Might SM be able to recover the 1.5 million estimated implementation fees? Uh, here again, as for the other jurisdictions, uh, uh, the, the, the answer is no, because this was only an estimation, and not a, uh, this was not contractually agreed. Eight, what might Stratos be able to recover for misrepresentation and or breach of warranty under the magic solutions order form? Depending on the nature of the misrepresentation and or the breach uh, of SM, Stratos could claim and possibly obtain, first of all, the forced execution of SM's contractual obligations. This should be the first uh, request to be made before a court. If it is not possible, uh, then Stratos could ask for the replacement or repairs of the software, and if this doesn't doesn't work, uh, it, or if it is, it it could be uh, it could happen that this is not uh, something that it could uh, reasonably obtain uh, in practice. Then it could ask uh, for they could ask for the diminution of price and or the term termination of the contract. Uh, in any event, uh, Stratos could ask for damages for direct losses such as costs for technical assistance, uh, damages on equipment, replacement of equipment, etc. And all this, of course, is a matter of uh, evidence that would have to be brought before the courts. Thank you.
So we're moving on to, to dispute. Now, you know, this is before litigation where things are starting to unravel. Um, and this can often be a really critical period. You can make mistakes at this point. You can concede stuff. You can set off down the wrong direction that actually, if it ever did get to court, hopefully it won't, can really uh, damage your, your position. So handling the brewing dispute, both internally and what you say to your customer, um, can be a really important phase. Um, so what we've tried to do in the next section is just flag up for each country some of the important things to think about. There's an awful lot more in here, but obviously um, if there ever was a dispute you may want to get specific advice, but here's some kind of top tips I guess is how, we, is how we're dealing with it. So for English law, um, one of the most important things is to get the contract back out, go through it again, and most importantly follow any dispute resolution clauses in the contract. Because the last thing you want to do is to find yourselves months down the line having not followed those and actually being in breach of the contract yourself because you haven't followed them. There's been some English court cases where the damages have been reduced or made not available because the innocent party didn't follow the dispute resolution clauses properly. The second thing is about notices. You'll start to move to a phase where someone will start writing to you saying, it's not fit for purpose, please fix it 30 days or else we'll terminate, or vice versa. Um, again, make sure those notices really follow the, the, the contract terms very closely, both form and method of service. Um, keep records, make sure it's done properly. Although, don't ignore if you get a vague thing from the other side that may be a notice, may not, doesn't quite conform, don't assume you can ignore it. There have been another couple of cases recently where the court has thought that it was good enough, it did the purpose, and um, although it wasn't strictly in the terms of the contract, it was deemed notice. So you may have found they may have terminated, but on the, off the back of something quite right. So if you get something which is a bit um, unusual, make sure you get it clarified one way or the other. And those notices, any you're sending out, should be open, <coughs> not marked without prejudice. But any negotiations, discussions, etc., that you're trying to um, used to bring about a solution should, if you want them to be not available to the court, mark without prejudice, 
And there's other options, so you can mark things without prejudice, say to costs in the UK, um, which means you can then use those negotiations uh, as reasons for getting costs back ultimately after the court decision, if there is one. Um, another powerful thing to look at is, is, is making your negotiations, your offers open, uh, which may uh, put some more pressure on the other side. And lastly, disclosure is obviously a big thing under English law, and we'll talk about the other countries in, in a moment, but you need to be very careful in retaining privilege. So legal advice privilege, uh, any discussions before a dispute really gets going. You need to make sure that documents are kept confidential between the internal lawyer and the internal client. And you've got the whole three rivers issues of who is that client. So you can't assume that your entire business is going to be deemed a client. And, and what's important is identifying very early on a small team that's going to be looking at this issue um, with you as the in-house lawyer. And then when uh, con litigation starts to become more real, when it's clearly contemplated, then you have litigation privilege, which gives you a bit more latitude um, and you can be a little bit more, uh, more relaxed in that situation. So that's English law. I'm going to hand over now to Andreas to, to flag up some points in the German law. So thank you, Paul. Maybe before we come to the slide, um, a short excursion, because we had this discussions in, in the, during the coffee break. Um, please be aware, we, we just heard from, from Paul that uh, serving, you, you should uh, consider the right uh, method of uh, serving a notice. Uh, in Germany, you have to evidence the service of the notice and uh, it doesn't help you if, uh, if you have a contractual stipulation saying, well, the, any, any notices are deemed to be served two days after something happened. Um, this clause will be regarded as being not valid. So in Germany, we have a very strict scheme that you have to evidence the uh, service of notice. Um, now, coming back to the slide, um, well, nothing specific to report. Maybe we have a lot of uh, things to report because uh, the, the system is quite different in Germany. Um, first of all, you should not be too shy, if it's a German matter, to uh, amicably try to settle, negotiate um, a brewing matter, uh, as in our case, and try to settle it. Because um, every everything you disclose there um, or you indicate that you would willing to um, compromise uh, will not be uh, will not have any negative impact on further litigation uh, because this was during settlement proce uh, proceedings so uh, once you do not bindingly agree to pay something um, as a, a settlement proposal uh, such kind of negotiations will not have a negative impact um, we do not know at all any disclosure concept. That means any party um, trying to litigate a claim uh, has to live and uh, work on the basis they have at hand as evidence. They are not entitled to have a look into your files, in your documents, in your internal uh, communication. Um, so uh, that is not known in Germany. Um, which is maybe a, a big relief uh, if, if you are aware of it. 
On the other hand, what we do not know as well is any privileged content, confidential uh, scheme. So whatever you send out to the other party, either before um, the dispute gets brewing or afterwards, and regardless what kind of uh, label you're using for confidential, privileged or, or the like, uh, it does not matter. The other party is entitled to use this during litigation as well. So it's a little bit uh, different scheme in Germany. So um, as a result, um, you can be quite open in discussions about a settlement. You should be very careful what kind of documents, uh, proofs, written materials you send out uh, to the other party and maybe um, you are also careful with internal communication, not because you are obliged to disclose anything to the other party, but uh, failure is a human thing and whatever you communi communicate internally by email might be by mistakes sent out to the other party and then immediately can be used by your opposite uh, party. So I think these are the main points for Germany. and. Last time, handing over to Italy. Thank you, Andreas. Um, actually, the, in Italy, the situation is, uh, is quite similar to, to what Andreas told us. Um, so when assessing your, your best strategy uh, in a, in a pre-litigation scenario like, like the one we, we are talking about, uh, of course, you will preliminarily assess and review um, or what, what, what is binding for your company, that, that would be, uh, under the case we are, we are, we are commenting, uh, that would be fundamental to assess and to define our preliminary strategy. Uh, also in Italy, we don't have any kind of legal privilege between the parties, so be careful about what, what, uh, what you, you are communicating to the other party, because you know, that would be brought to court uh, more likely. Uh, there is just confidentiality between lawyers. If you if you uh, put in the in, in the in the, the uh, in the relevant communication that that message, that settlement proposal, whatever it is, would be subject to confidentiality. Consider that there is it's it's a, uh, I would say a sensitive issue. Uh, the question of you know the legal privilege on the client attorney privilege when you are communicating with uh, with an in-house counsel because you know it happens in Italy that uh, general counsel in-house counsel are not lawyers so are not qualified uh, in the in the relevant with the with the with the relevant bar so there could be some uh, problems in terms of protection uh, of internal communication between an external firm and uh, an in-house counsel. In Italy, we don't have uh, a disclosure process, but on the other hand, there are um, some very effective court relief, uh, court injunctions for urgent investigation to be carried out in a very short time frame, uh, especially in, uh, in IP cases. And of course, you know, you will consider all uh, this stuff when uh, when making your strategy, including the economical aspects, you are you are you are intention to to achieve. Thank you, Domenico. So on, on the French law, uh, I mean the, most of the recommendations are more uh, would, uh, I would say 
mo mostly based on a common sense common sense basis. Uh, first of all, if there are some notice notices to be sent, uh, formal notices, of course they should be in accordance with the the, the provisions of the contract. Uh, of course, be careful in their in their drafting. It is advised that they 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 be reviewed by the the, the, the legal department. Uh, when assessing uh, the opportunity between amicable settlement and vers versus litigation, of course, what uh, should be assessed are the costs and uh, and what could uh, harm the re possibly harm the reputation of the company. Uh, be uh, always careful with. Uh, all what is said or, or what is put into writing, even though this is an internal communication, uh, because uh, as you will see later on, there, there might be some uh, discovery procedures, procedures in France. And if you discuss uh, with the other party, uh, if at all possible, do it through lawyers, because uh, only correspondence and, uh, between lawyers and between the lawyers and their clients are privileged. Uh, this means that uh, I have I had a recent case. Uh, where where uh, had this, uh, had uh, confidential conversations with the uh, the the lawyer of the uh, opponent, and uh, he had fully admitted that we were fully right and that he that they were in a complete tort. So they could admit this because this was absolutely privileged and confidential. And on the other hand, of course, of course, uh, before the judge, he said something different. <laughs> so, but but we are. This is something which is uh, that that proves that it is something with, on which you can, you can. Uh, you can rely, and of course, no, 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 no such confidential uh, uh, discussions could be brought before court. Otherwise, we would have be, we would have serious problems with the, the bar association. Uh, in France, there is, unless in the other countries, there is a discovery procedure which is uh, very uh, scarcely used. Uh, but you have to go to court and ask the judge to, and bring sufficient evidence that there are something that could be found in the in the the other. Parties' premises and that could uh, be detrimental to the uh, and crucial for, for for the for the issue at stake. So uh, of course, be careful with all internal communication because this, this, they could be seized, uh, especially all the uh, exchanges of emails. And if you finally come to a settlement uh, on the French law, uh, be careful that the the, the the agreement would state that uh, it it puts an end to all the current and future disputes with respect to the to the uh, matter at stake. And in order to be valid on the French law, a settlement should provide for reciprocal uh, uh, concessions. That means that even though you are in your full rights and you believe that you are absolutely right, you would have to give something, either a diminution in price or uh, something else, in order to, to have a valid uh, and binding uh, settlement agreement. Thank you very much.